Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and this podcast is ranked in the top 2% of the most popular podcasts globally. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's all because of my incredible guests. I am honored and blessed to share time with people who are at the top of their game and who are willing to help you get to where you want to be in life and in business. And these are not people who hold back. Their goal is to share with us the essence of peak performance. And my guest today, David Hay, joins us to discuss his new book, Bubble 3.0, History's Biggest Financial Bubble, Who Blew It, Who Blew and How to, yeah, I think that's it, Who Blew It and How to Protect Yourself When It Blows Apart. It's a big title. It's also scary as heck. I've read the book. It's scary. <laughs> We're going to ask him why. The book explores why he believes the financial markets are heading towards a third iteration of past market bus, B-U-S-T-S. He believes that there are a number of investment areas, asset classes, excuse me, poised to benefit from what he has begun referring to as the new world disorder. We hear a lot about the new world order have for years if we've been paying attention, but he's talking about the new world disorder. Now, David Hay has been working in the securities industry since 1979 when he joined Dean Witter Reynolds, which is now Morgan Stanley, and he was named senior vice president in 1983. In 1985, he was the youngest member to be elected to Dean Witter's Elite Chairman's Council. And he's got a lot more to tell you about, and it's in the show notes, so I'm not going to keep going on and on and on because his credentials are impressive. So, David, welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. It's good to have you here. Well, thanks, Denise. I'm the one that's honored. Oh, thank you. I've never been in, in a show that's in the top 2% globally. That's That's very impressive. You know, I, I'm laughing because when I found out it was the top 5%, I was doing my little happy dance in the corner, and then it got to 2.5%, and just recently it went to 2%, and now I'm like, what the heck? But you know what? It's all because of my guests. It really is. I get to meet people from all over the world, from you know all different walks, and you get to share your information with a really large audience. For me, it's a win-win. Well, I sure hope I don't knock your ratings down. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> That's Listen, I've read your book. <laughs> We've had several conversations. It's you know, Investments, things like this, are not something I know much about. I know just enough to say I need an expert. I won't try to do it on my own. But when I was reading your book, <laughs> you're going to think I'm a lunatic, I realized that I was gripping my jeans, you know, right above your knee where you have that little fold. And I was gripping my jeans so tight that I actually stretched a section of them. <laughs> so your book scared me. I'm going to tell you right now, it scared me, which is probably not a bad thing. So let's talk about what it is and why you wrote it and why it's so important for people to know about it. Sure. Well, thank you for that lead-in. And I think it's important to create a little bit of a timeline because we did digitally publish the book back at the beginning of the year. In fact, actually, some of the chapters were published digitally as far back as October of last year. 
because we really did hit, in my opinion, and I think it's pretty hard to argue with at this point, peak insanity last year. And that's when things like the cryptos went absolutely ballistic and NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and SPACs, special purpose acquisition corporations, and just a, a, I mean, certain collected art, uh, pretty much anything that could be bid up in price during what was a free money period. Uh, and that's a big part of what created Bubble 3.0 is free money and in some countries actually where you were being paid to borrow money. There were mortgagees, people that were buying homes in Denmark that were getting paid by their bank to take out a mortgage, which is absolutely surreal. But so many things that happened in recent years were surreal, but that may have been one of the most uh, spectacular, though I do think cryptos, which, uh, of course, are huge in the news these days in the wake of the blow-up of FTX, uh, were you know, probably the epicenter of the mass speculation. And I think it's important to realize, well, the reason I call it Bubble 3.0, that Bubble 1.0 was the tech bubble of the late 1990s, which, of course, imploded. Uh, the NASDAQ went down almost 80%, which is mostly tech. And then Bubble 2.0 was the infamous housing mania and mortgage. You know, that's when the subprime mortgage stuff went nuts, and that was the basis of the book, The Big Short. And then Bubble 3.0, which I would call basically the bubble and everything. But kind of a key point to this is the connectivity of Bubbles 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, because a lot of the so-called remedial actions that were taken by, say, the Fed created, you know, planted the seeds for the next bubble. So we've had these serial bubbles over the last 25 years, roughly, and it's, I mean, that when you say scary, that's why it's scary, is that when you create these enormous speculative excesses, you know, there's a very severe price to pay, and unfortunately, millions of Americans are paying that price right now, especially those that drank the crypto Kool-Aid, and that was really what I was warning about early in the year. In fact, one of the things that I said, you know, pretty uh, stridently was to, if you were going to stick with the cryptos, get your cryptos off the exchanges. And, of course, it's a lot of these exchanges that are absolutely blowing up and people are losing everything. So that's just kind of a quick overview, but there's obviously more to cover, but that's a decent lead-in. Well, and listen, I wanted to bring this up because when we had our conversations before this, you shared with me that you had you were so terrified. I'm Terrified is not the right word, but you were so very concerned about what was happening, what was potentially going to happen, that you actually wrote your book on Substack, Substack platform, which is a great blogging platform. It's, it's good for a lot of things. But you actually wrote it there, and that then later became the book. But because of what was happening, things that were, correct me if I'm wrong, but things that were in the book were actually put on Substack out of order than they are in the book because they were that critical. Does that sound about right? Did You're I get exactly it right. right. Okay, good. You did. You're, you're See, precisely I did correct. Listen. And, and a good, you did. You did very well. And a good example of that is Chapter 10, which was really the, the insanity bubble was the name of the chapter, and it was on these things that we were just talking about, particularly the cryptos and specifically Dogecoin, which its founder, you know, much to his credit, said, hey, people, what are you thinking? This thing is worthless, absolutely worthless, and yet it got up to a market valuation of $88 billion dollars which is significantly larger than a lot of U.S. blue-chip companies. And there were all kinds of spinoffs of Dogecoin, and Elon Musk touted it uh, because it was his dog that was the his, – his breed of dogs was the, you know, kind of the avatar, if you will, for, for Dogecoin. 
but of course it's just you know it's it's crashed but it's still worth about 10 billion which is 10 billion more than it should be worth and and that's what happens with these manias is that they build up so much momentum and the prices get so ridiculously uh, elevated that it takes a while for them to come down it doesn't just go in a straight line unless something fails like FTX did and a number of the other you know crypto exchanges or stable coins love that name because they've been proven to be anything but I call them stable coins and that's uh, ironically tether which a lot of your listeners know about and maybe even use that's the leading stable coin and that one has not yet imploded but I think it will so it's uh, yeah you're exactly right it was really important to get this out as quickly as possible and if you wait to go through the traditional publishing route I mean it would have been stale by the time it happened so we want to be on record you know with forecasting in advance what we thought was going to be this disaster and it's not a matter of saying well it, it could happen it has happened I think the question is is it over and my answer would be no I think there's more pain to come and a good example of that is just what I said about Dogecoin yes it's down from 88 billion to 10 billion but 10 billion is still you know it's just it makes no sense for something that has no intrinsic value I'm afraid this hangover is, is going to linger for a while well you know when when you were talking I was scribbling down notes because all of a sudden I'm thinking Ooh, okay that makes sense I have a question I have never messed with any of these things because frankly I don't know enough about them to put my money in them but they always struck me as kind of a Ponzi scheme well I think you are perceptive I think that's a good description they really do depend oh, okay. on more you know kind of the greater fool theory of you know more people coming in to drive them up because even Bitcoin which is you know I think for sure and legitimately uh, the most uh, credible of all the cryptocurrencies but still it needs new money coming in and that money ironically tends to be well it doesn't tend to be it is fiat money you know basically US dollars whether they're even if they come from a stable coin they're coming ultimately from US dollars so if those US dollars get cut off because all of a sudden people start losing instead of making a bunch of money overnight so then that flow reverses you start getting liquidations and when there's really nothing to support it but kind of a story uh, then the, the sell-off can be just absolutely wicked and of course that's what we've seen there's been about two trillion dollars actually more than that now that's been wiped out in gross crypto value and you know, it was pretty gross I kind of stumbled on that but I think that's an accurate word Okay, David, this is what I don't really understand, so I'm hoping you can kind of clear my my brain here. It if I'm not grossly mistaken, people started these this type of currency because they didn't they don't trust the dollar, the US dollar. It's not backed by anything. And our politicians like to have their printing presses running all the time, so I don't know anybody who really trusts the dollar. But it seems to me that it's a little bit odd that it, to get into these crypto places I don't know what to call them you have to use the US dollar <laughs> there's a disconnect there for me yes well you're exactly right again and uh, you're on a roll so it's it is true that the US dollar is the on-ramp that's how you get into these things and it's also the off-ramp that's how you get out so it is kind of contradictory that this uh, much uh, you know, basically looked down upon uh, fiat currency of the US dollar still is the you know enabling factor behind uh, crypto trading I mean it's ultimately what you put in and ultimately what you get out so it is you know pretty ironic and 
you know, the dollar certainly has a lot of problems. In fact, I've actually referred to it as the next big short, uh, you know, kind of playing off on Michael Lewis's book about the, the housing bubble, uh, because I do think the U.S. dollar, which had been very strong earlier this year, for most of this year, has been weakening lately, through most of 2022, I should say. And I think ultimately it is going to go through a major decline. But while Bitcoin is, and especially its weaker uh, peers, have been going down, the U.S. dollar has been going up, so really makes those folks look pretty silly. So it's, you know, the dollar's got problems, but I would say crypto's got even bigger problems, at least for now. Ultimately, I do think there's going to be some survivors, and I think there is a place, but it's, it's just, you say you don't understand it. I've been talking to almost everybody that I've discussed this uh, concept with. I don't think they understand it. Even very, very bright people that, you know, top right. Wall Street strategists who, after they get briefed on it, they go, well, I still don't understand it. And I don't think these people <laughs> tell me what it, you know, how it works really get it either. So it's, See, now it's I don't and that's feel what so bad. No, you shouldn't feel bad at all. And but that's why these things are such great speculative playthings in a bull market that's created by all that fake money that the central banks created, literally trillions and trillions, because nobody could really say, Well, hey, Bitcoin's only worth, you know, twenty thousand, fifty thousand, or there are people out there, bright people, credible people saying it was worth a million dollars a coin. And now it's trading for about $16,000. It's down about 80% from its peak a little over a year ago. So it's it's been, uh, but it's done that multiple times. That's the amazing thing about Bitcoin is it will go up spectacularly, crash. Usually once these things crash and go down 80%, they're dead. They never come back. Or it takes decades for them to come back. And in this case, it's had uh, about you know, three or four different uh, kind of Lazarus-like experiences rising from the dead. But, you know, I you probably shouldn't only talk about cryptos, but it's so much in the news right now. It it really is. I have to ask you, is this, listening to it going up and down, up and down, up and down, how much marketing goes into this stuff to convince people to put their their dollars, their actual, you know, United States dollars, into something that they really have no means of understanding it or knowing what it's going to do? And then, you know, this is always a, a big thing. The government's going to do their best to get their money out of it somehow or another. So it's, I would, I'm scared to death of it. I wouldn't touch it. Well, you're right on again. I mean, if you look at the Super Bowl of last year, I'm sorry, of this year, which was really for previous year's season, but it was uh, February of this year, it was, it was the number one, uh, the main advertising that went on during that was related to cryptos. You have people like Tom Brady on there that, you know, were touting some of the rappers. And then uh, if you ever watch Shark Tank, Kevin O'Leary, he calls himself Mr. Wonderful, and he was uh, getting paid to flog FTX, the one that just blew up, Sam Bankman Freed. Oh, no. Who's, yeah, <laughs> I bet so he's crying it, now. Obviously, he's very embarrassed. It's, it's certainly tarnished his reputation. Mark Wahlberg got into the whole crypto-plugging game and, and it, it is just, in fact, we tweeted on it at the time, right after the Super Bowl happened, and said, this is not a good sign. These people don't understand what they're recommending. And the bubble at that point was already popping. But since then, of course, it's come, all the cryptos have been hit much, much harder. So, yeah, it was, uh, that was the big thing they did, was to get celebrities to tout them. And uh, the celebrities, you know, they, they got paid in crypto, and they did very well, and I presume a lot of them got out, but you know, we'll never probably never know that. But 
it wasn't just that. I mean, last year we also saw the meme stocks like GameStop and AMC Entertainment, AMC Theaters, the largest theater chain in the world, but has been losing huge money ever since COVID, and those stocks went absolutely postal, and they destroyed a couple of hedge funds and front page news back uh, was kind of hit a crescendo in January, February of, of this year. And then those things have been absolutely annihilated too. And there was, again, a lot of promotion of those by the so-called influencers, people telling other people to get into these things early. And, and for a while it worked, but the trouble with these things, whenever you can just tell by looking at the price chart of whatever it is, and when it goes absolutely straight up, you know, that's a classic signature of a bubble. And things that go straight up have a tendency to come down very hard. They still bounce, you know, they still rally periodically, but you know, then, you know, the rallies fail and they go down to lower lows, and that's exactly what we've been seeing. Profitless tech companies w- would be another example of that. Companies that were so popular last year, uh, but really weren't making any money, actually were losing money, but they had a sexy story. And they went, to, you know, they also had that same kind of moonshot trajectory to their price charts, and those things are down 70, 80, 90%. So once again, this isn't conjecture on my part. It was when we first published this stuff, but now it's really been borne out, and you know it's been a, a huge wealth wipeout. At one point, it was the biggest wealth wipeout since the 1930s. There was a bit of a rally since mid-October, but once again, things were going south. So it's um, you're right. You were right to be scared. Well, that and I have a tried and true strategy about celebrities and influencers. They don't know crap, so I ignore mm-hmm. them. They really don't. They may have a pretty face. They may have, you know, millions of people following them online. I'm not one of them. Nobody can tell me that any of these made-up people, because they are, in my opinion, know anything more than I do. In fact, I think they often know a lot less than I do. I don't pay attention to them. In fact, I laugh at them and keep on moving. Once again, good move on your part. Well, I'm a cranky person, so it works for me. I, why am I going to trust somebody that, and I'm just going to go out and say, they're an influence that they have fake boobs, fake hair, fake teeth, fake everything, but they're going to tell me how to operate my finances? I don't think so. Unfortunately, a lot of people buy into their, their BS. The marketing. Let's go back to marketing. Right. No, it's, uh, you know, there's all kinds of, like, postmodern and, post-Christian, and I think the, the main thing that we're really post these days in this society is truth. We've gone post-truth, and it's unfortunate. And, and common sense. Uh, I know you and what I both... What the heck happened to common yeah, sense? Good point. Right. Well, was, I think it was Voltaire said that it's uh, it's been proven that common sense isn't so common, and it, you're, once again, spot on with that. Common sense is, you know, especially when people make money quickly, you know, there's I don't think there's anything as corrupting or uh, just deceptive is intoxicating in a way as making money really fast. And the worst thing is to have somebody that you know, you know, like a brother-in-law or sister-in-law who's making a lot of money, more money than you are, and then they tell you about it at, you know, the family get-together, and that, that tends to really irritate people. They just can't stand to see people they know make more money than they are, and so then it, it's, you get this uh, fear of missing out type of mentality oh, okay. where people just yeah. want to be in whatever the hot whatever the hot thing is, and they're always thinking, well, I'll get out you know, before it goes, because most people kind of know in their hearts that 
the stuff is insane and it's going to have a bad ending. But instead of doing it logically, I mean, this is so true of the cryptos, and I think that's why so much money got annihilated, is that uh, they bought more as they went up. So instead of doing the rational thing and saying, gee, this is just like found money, I'm going to take some of this, you know, as profits. And, you know, if it goes up 40 or 50%, take 40 or 50% out, off the table. But instead they put more in, and when the bubble pops, they actually get clobbered. And unfortunately, that's just the way human nature is. There's very few people that are disciplined enough to actually take profits into a bubble. And as you pointed out, I mean, I'm convinced, and I think there's just overwhelming documentation to back this up, that we did see the biggest bubble in human history uh, last year, at least it hit its, its apex last year, and and that's why we're getting such a painful deflation this year. It's like the bigger the bubble, the bigger the bust. Hard to get away from that truism. Right. So, David, what happens to people like me? How are we impacted? You know, we're not in it. We have never, we haven't, we're not going to be. But, you know, you're talking about so much money lost, whether it's fiat, whether it's crypto, whatever it is. How does that impact us? You know, people who are like, I didn't have anything to do that. Why am I paying for this? Well, I think that kind of the nefarious thing is that we end up paying for it indirectly, you know, with these bailouts that happen. Uh, Even, you know, like student loan forgiveness, where you say, well, there's definitely people who were disadvantaged and there probably should have been some, but was it $400 billion of student loan forgiveness and not really fair for those people that had diligently paid back their student loans. But, you know, that's, I mean, that money comes from somewhere. It doesn't just happen. I mean, the government can print it up, but when the government prints, what happens? You get inflation. That's one of the things we've been saying for the last couple of years that, you know, obviously when COVID hit, you needed to do some emergency things. Some of the stimulus programs certainly made sense and some of the money printing made sense temporarily. But then they just, you know, temporary becomes permanent. I think uh, Ronald Reagan said there's nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. And, and we've seen that repeatedly with government policies that, you know, like the, the original quantitative easing, the first Fed printing exercise was only supposed to be short term, like a year or two. And then by 2019, 10 years later, they were still doing quantitative easing, though they weren't calling it that. Then when COVID hit, that's when we went into something called modern monetary theory, MMT, which basically holds incorrectly, as I argued at the time, that the government could just spend without any concern about budgets, you know, staying within some kind of a normal budget, what the economy can actually afford. So, you know, that's when about $5 trillion was spent, and it was basically financed by what I call the Fed's magical money machine. And it, for a short time, it looked great. And, of course, that creates you know, when there's that much money that gets just created out of thin air, then it creates these bubbles that we've already talked about a lot, and it's, it creates kind of a boom in the economy, a very strong growth in 2021, especially in the first half. But then inflation shows up, and when inflation shows up, that's when the party's over, and that's when we get hit because we all have to pay these higher prices. So it just gets back to the old saying, there's no free lunch. And we thought there was. We were told right. by these, some of these economists that there was, but, you know, that's always false. And this turn, time it's turned out false again. Right. There's no free medical. And speaking of government, they like savings time. Really? Do we really need that? I mean, but it's there. It's there for the, the duration, I guess. But, you know, you're right. Once they sort Reagan was right. Once they get it in there, it doesn't go away. So you started, I mean, you've been a portfolio manager 
you know, helping clients build their financial legacies for about 40 years, I think you told me. And you also built a business that managed $300 million to $2.5 billion. But now, I mean, you're, you're sounding the clarion call, and you talked, let's go back to Haymaker on the Substack platform. You started there. What made you go there first? Because, I mean, you had the book, you were going to write it, but you really felt that this was information that needed. Why did you choose Substack? I'm getting ready to, to publish there, too. So I'm kind of asking for oh, me yes. as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a, a number of friends. On, you know, It's kind of an interestingly close-knit financial community or the financial media, financial newsletters. Uh, a lot of us know each other and, and develop kind of mutual respect for each other. And you know, a lot of these people are brighter than I am, and they went to Substack, and uh, it came highly recommended by, I think, uh, there's actually a, you can subscribe to his newsletter fairly reasonably or just get the free sample, Doomberg, you know, it's kind of like Bloomberg, but with a D-O-O-M, and he was our mentor in getting us on Substack. He is one of the most brilliant people I've ever met, and following his stuff, again, he gives you each week about half of his paid newsletter, and, but it's it's really quite reasonable to get his full newsletter, and he has a very kind of... Uh, dystopian might be a little too harsh, but certainly a very cynical view of a lot of the things that the policymakers around the world are doing and have done. Uh, so it's uh, that, that was, I'd say, probably the primary reason, just the fact that some of my other you know, colleagues were already on Substack and the speed. You know, I keep talking about we, were, we really felt, as it turned out correctly, that we needed to get this information out as soon as we could, if nothing else, to establish credibility. So, you know, we did warn there were about 10 different predictions in my book that turned out to be true. One that didn't turn out to be true, I like to highlight, because I'm certainly not flawless, was the dollar that we talked about earlier. The fact that the dollar had such a strong move at a time when inflation was really accelerating, usually when inflation takes off, the dollar goes down. In this case, it had a really a remarkable rally for most of this year. Now, lately, it has started to, to back off and fall in price. And I think ultimately it will fall a lot more than it has. But it's um, it's just what we've witnessed in recent years has been, I think it's just literally going to go down to the history books. People will look back in 10, 20, 30 years ago, what were they thinking? How could they have paid these prices? How could they have flushed trillions of dollars down the toilet? But that's unfortunately exactly what we've done. Well, I've been watching it as best as I can without fully understanding it. And that's what goes through my mind is what is wrong with these people? I mean, do do they have no critical thinking? You know, do, can they not just draw a straight line? What the heck? I mean, I don't know anything about finances at your level, and even I can see none of this was a very good idea. But you mentioned ten predictions. Give me several that you really kind of hoped wouldn't come true, but they did anyway. Well, I would say the one that I hoped wouldn't come true was inflation, but it just looked unavoidable when you saw the money supply increase 40% over a couple of years. Uh, that just it's it's hard not to get fairly high inflation when that happens. But you know nobody likes to see that. That tends to be hard on financial assets. You know that's why this has been such a brutal year. 2022 was such a tough year because you had both stocks and bonds falling. So for, and I'm sure you have a lot of listeners that have a balanced portfolio where they've got, say, half their money in bonds and half their money in stock. And you would think that when stocks get hit, bonds go up or vice versa. That's typically how it is. They kind of counterbalance each other. But 
when inflation goes raging, then they both get hit. And unfortunately, that's what happened. Uh, I would say one of our certainly better predictions was energy, uh, where we were recommending clients protect from this uh, new world disorder, as you pointed out, by having uh, a healthy commitment to energy stocks, which a lot of brainiacs or so-called pundits, supposed pundits, were telling people to avoid that they were uninvestable. You know, don't buy things like oil and gas producers because they're going to be put out of business by solar and wind and other renewables. And uh, despite all that negativity, or maybe because of it, because usually when there's negativity, there's very low prices. So energy stocks this year are going to be up around 60%. So for 2022, including dividends, about 60, not 1.6, but 6.0 in a very tough year. And they had a great year last year. We really went kind of max bullish on them toward the end of 2020, and they have been incredibly rewarding for our clients. So that's the prediction that came through that I'm happy about. But, um, you know, just in general, it's, it's no fun to tell people that trouble is coming. And that's why I think Wall Street tends to always have kind of, you know, put on the happy face is that there's, uh, you know, there's, it's not great for business to be warning people that trouble is coming. But there are times you have to do it. And I think when you, if you really, if I really believed, as I did, that that was the biggest bubble in human history that we saw that really hit its peak last year, it was, I would have been, I really couldn't have looked myself in the mirror by not getting out there and, and warning about it as much as I publicly could. So it's, you know, that's, it's never, never great to be a, a bearer of bad tidings. No, it's as I said, not. I don't think we've seen them all play out yet. Well, and you've got, I mean, I wanted to ask you about the predictions, and I just did, that that you made that have come to fruition. You said about 10. Is there one of those or two of those that just had you going, well, crud, I didn't want to have to say that, but darn it, there it is. Well, I guess bonds would be another thing because, you know, the people that speculate in the profitless technology companies or the meme stocks or the cryptos, they kind of deserve what they get, right? I mean, they're, they're playing a very dangerous game. But when you're investing in the bond market, you're really not doing that. And, and one of our predictions was that it was going to be a very tough year for bonds. At the end of last year, uh, the 10-year end of 2021, the 10-year Treasury note, so like a, a Treasury bill but with a 10-year maturity, and there are 30-year maturities, by the way, but the 10-year was only yielding about 1.5%. You know, at one point this year, the 10-year was yielding almost 4.25%. That is a massive up move in rates in a year. And what it does, when, when bonds are like a teeter-totter, so when rates move up, prices go down. So this has been, you know, at one point, it was the worst year for government bonds since basically the founding of the country. Now, there's been a bit of a rally with bonds here lately, too. Unfortunately, I think as we get into next year, we're going to see another spike in interest rates. So that's that, that's unfortunate. And, of course, if you take inflation into account, it's even worse. So let's say somebody lost 15% on their bonds, which was easy to do this year, even with high-grade bonds, and then inflation was 8 and they really lost 23% in terms of purchasing power. That's horrible. And that's very unfortunate because those people were – not trying to do anything crazy. What do they do? I mean, is there anything that they can do to build it back up, get a second job? What do they do? Well, unfortunately, I think that is happening, that people are having to take uh, 
second jobs in, in many cases. That's why you're seeing uh, some of these labor numbers look better because you've got people taking more than one uh-huh. job. So it's, I knew it. I knew that was what was going on. Oh, you're right. You say you don't follow this stuff, but you, you get a lot of these things spot on. So well done. Well, but, I'm um, a logical, linear thinker. I can kind of figure some of these things out on my own without somebody in a blonde wig telling me what to do. I'm stuck on that, aren't I? <laughs> but it's just so creepy. Well, it's uh, you said, what can they do? And I guess the, you know the happy part of this, or the the upside of all the downside, is that interest rates are up substantially. So uh, you know there is a lot of cash on the sidelines. I think if, if things have gotten ugly, people do what they normally do, which is you know raise cash. But if you're just sitting in the bank earning virtually nothing, that's not where it should be. There's all kinds of short-term securities out there that are risk-free, ignoring inflation for the moment, that pay, you know, 4 4.5%. So whereas before cash was trash, you couldn't earn anything on it, now you can actually get a good yield with relatively short-term maturities. Uh, again, there's been a bond market rally lately, but uh, a few months ago it was possible to get, even a few weeks ago, corporate bonds yielding 6 to 7%, and you still – can get kind of in that vicinity, but we are concerned that there's going to be another shakeout coming in the bond market and the, the, the yield differential known as spread between corporate bonds and government bonds is, is I think, going to widen out. Part of it is because, Denise, I think we're going to have a severe profits recession in 2023, and I think oh, probably a general recession as well. And when that happens, corporate bonds get hit, and, of course, stocks really take it on the chin. And so far, I mean, the stock market really, at least if you've been in the traditional higher quality parts of the stock market, it's been a very orderly decline. And uh, there was a rally that started mid-October of 2022. And generally, you get this so-called Santa Claus rally in December. This year, you know, maybe Santa Claus came too early. Like, you know, they start celebrating Christmas, it seems like, uh, even before Halloween these days. And so maybe the Santa Claus rally came early, too. But I guess my, my concern is that this payback from the biggest bubble ever has not been complete. We've got more to come. And we're still hearing about it. I think it would be a great time to be bullish. <clears throat> Pardon me? We're still hearing about it. I mean, this this whole SF, whatever his name is, um, SFD, what was it? SFX? SBF, Stan Bankman Freed. Stan Bankman, right. That's still coming out. I mean, honestly, I don't. I don't know how he can physically or morally survive this. I really don't. I mean, you have to wonder well, if he's on the suicide watch. I kind of doubt it in his case. I, I think he's. I think there's some pathological stuff going on there. But pretty funny oh, yeah, seeing no some question. of the tweets of him in the first class lounges as he was being flown back to his parents' house. And, he supposedly broke, but put up enough for a $250 million bond. I know you don't have to put up all the money, but still, that's right. that was a huge bond that was that was somehow posted. And I have a feeling he'll land on his feet. It's interesting how much he made in the way of political donations. At one point, he committed a billion dollars to political contributions. Apparently, he only, only in air quotes, uh, made about $50 million of that, but obviously bought a lot of influence with that. And Apparently, they were maintaining, you know, you get this enterprise that was worth supposedly $30, $40 billion, and they were doing their accounting on QuickBooks. It's I read that. 30, I mean, and it's amazing. Isn't that something? 
Yeah. So I don't think he was taking this seriously at some levels. It's just like QuickBooks, really? Yeah, you would think that somebody well, with that kind of money could build his own databases. On, I mean, he could build everything he needed to keep it safe and keep on top of it, but I don't think he did. Maybe he didn't want to. But it's, uh, ah. you know, some of these firms that invested with him were very high profile. I mean, great reputations, very successful over the years. But in one of his pitches to them, you know, doing a PowerPoint type of presentation, he was playing a video game while he was making the pitch. And just, I mean, there were a lot of a lot of warning flags for anybody that was really paying attention. See, my hackles would have gone straight up and stayed there. Yeah, if you're that disruptive and if you're that, dis- you know, unable to respect your audience, I'm not going to pay attention to you. But that's me. I'm, I'm a cranky well, person. I think we we took care of that earlier. I'm a cranky person. <laughs> Well, it's, you know, you're discerning and you're realistic, whereas, you know, again, when people start seeing big money being made almost overnight, the urge to get in that, even if there's all kinds of warning flags, is very tough for most humans to resist. And that's how bubbles happen. And bubbles have happened almost since the beginning of time. I mean, the most famous early one was in the tulip bulbs back in, I guess, it was the early 1500s in Holland. And it was spectacular, and a lot of people thought it would never be uh, equaled, and certainly not. A lot of people don't surpassed. realize that that those bulbs were a currency. Right, right. Well, they were. But um, you know, whenever prices, as I said, whenever prices just go absolutely straight up, that's a bubble, and it's going to have an unhappy ending. What you don't know. I mean, it, it, I wish I could say I was clairvoyant because I've been early in virtually every bubble I've called out in my career, uh, starting with J- Japan, Japanese stocks, and real estate back in the 1980s. I was I was saying that Nikkei, was, which was the Japanese version of the S&P 500, was crazy when it was 20,000, and it went to 40,000. And in the late 90s, I said the NASDAQ was crazy at 2,500, it went to 5,000. So way, way early, but in both cases, they went, you know, way below where I was saying they were crazy. So that's the hard part about calling out bubbles is is knowing when that straight-up line is is going to reverse because they can't keep going and do keep going more than you think if you're looking at them rationally. And bubbles, by their very definition, are irrational. So trying to use rational thinking when it comes to something as irrational as bubbles can lead to being you know, prematurely negative, but it's far better to be prematurely negative than, uh, you know, stay at the, at the, in the party too long. Just, right. Uh, right. You don't want to be late getting out to these things because when they drop, they can drop so rapidly. And overnight, apparently. So let's take a minute to address issues that all of us are concerned about right now, all of us that are, con- you know, we're all consumers. Gas and oil, oh my gosh. Energy, everything is going up. I mean, it's just crazy. Food costs, listen, <laughs> trying to find a turkey this year for Thanksgiving was a problem. Supply chain issues, we almost could not find a turkey. <clears throat> How does that happen? But it does. It has been. Well, yeah, we, we have gone from an era of, you know, lots of, lots of supply no shortages to where shortages uh, do crop up, prices go 
you know, almost like a, a meme stock for a while. And, you know, if you think it's bad here, look at what happened to energy costs in Europe. In fact, I saw in the New York Times that the 61% of Scottish citizens this winter were likely to be in energy poverty because their power costs have gone up so astronomically. In the UK, roughly 30% of their power comes from wind, and the wind hasn't been blowing. And yet it's been cold, it's kind of intermittently warm and cold, but cold enough that there's been, uh, again, a, just a crunch for uh, these poor people and their power costs. And, and that's, you know, it's, it, to be fair, it's, uh, there has been a decline in energy costs in recent months. You know, the price of oil fell from $120 a barrel down to 70 and that's why you're seeing a lot of relief at the gas pump, but I don't think that's going to persist. I think we're going to see another spike in energy prices this year. You, know, you were talking about policy decisions and some of these games that are played, and as you, I think you're aware, the Biden administration was releasing uh, – they have released more oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve than has ever been released, and now it's at the lowest yeah. level in history, yep. at least since it was formed in and particularly relative to the amount of oil that's consumed per day, which has gone up drastically over the last 30 years. So now they have to go in and refill it, and they're, they're trying to refill it at $70 a barrel or less, but oil prices are back now closer to 80. I'm afraid they're going to miss their opportunity to get it back cheap. I mean, they really could kind of pull off a coup because I think their average sale price is something like $97 a barrel. But if they're too, you know, too clever – for their own good and try to bottom tick the price of oil, I'm afraid they're going to be paying above $100 at some point this year. So I guess what I'm saying is that if you if you agree with what I'm saying, you can invest in things that are scarce. And ironically, there has been a fairly significant correction in a lot of these things that do have uh, real supply challenges, You know, whether it's oil or natural gas or uranium or copper. You know, with this huge move to electric vehicles, the amount of copper that's going to be consumed is going to go up you know, exponentially. There's, there's like three times as much copper that goes into an electric vehicle as a traditional car. So it's, and there's just not that much copper that's being found. And pretty much all these scarce commodities and resources, there has been chronic underinvestment for years. It's really tough to develop a new copper mine, for example even though no copper is essential for the great green right. energy transition, as I call it. So one of my themes, Denise, has been greenflation, that by trying to go green so quickly, uh, I think way too quickly, you know, we're going to create a lot of price inflation by, uh, you know, for example, discouraging investment in oil and natural gas. So when you discourage investment, you get shortages, and shortages, of course, but, um, higher prices. As you know, I live in southwest Louisiana. I'm 15 miles from the, the Gulf of Mexico as a crow flies. We're, we're gas and oil down here, and we watch it. We watch what's going on, and we shake our heads, and we curse a lot. And, you know, the, and that leads me to my next thing is, you know, there's an intense despair and a lack of confidence in policymakers all over the world. It's not just the United States. And honestly, I don't know about you, but I feel like the whole world right now is operating under just a low-level sense of dread. We don't know what's coming. We don't know how honest these people are. Well, we know they're not. I'm not going to even call politicians honest. I just don't have it in me to lie like that. But, you know, the whole world right now is just waiting and wondering what the heck are these people going to do next? 
how far off am I? No, I don't think you're far off at all. I think that people globally, as you pointed out, it isn't just the United States issue. If you look at what's happened in China, the way they've handled COVID, you know, where it was trying to have zero zero COVID, and then uh, all of a sudden, almost overnight, they decided just to go full bore on opening up. And I, I don't know if this is a completely credible statistic, but, you know, China's got 1.4 billion people. I've heard that here lately there's more people that have died from COVID than it, or the population of the state of Texas. Now, again, that, I haven't seen that verified. It came from a reputable source that I saw today, but it's for sure there is, COVID is just running rampant through China right now. And I have a feeling they're just going to tough it out and they're going to lose a lot of people. And, of course, their vaccines aren't very effective. And so if you're a Chinese citizen, you go, well, do I really have confidence in this government? Or if you're over in Europe and you were told that you needed to go, you know, electric vehicles, and then you're also told that, oh, by the way, you better be careful charging your vehicle because we've got an electricity crunch going on right now and the grid could collapse. So don't charge your electric vehicle or, you know, cut back on your Christmas lights. And that happened also in California uh, this fall, where oh, yeah. people were told sure did. not to uh, not to charge their, their their EVs on the grid, and we have a very fragile grid, and we're we're going to make it even more fragile by trying to put some you know literally millions of additional electric vehicles um, plugging into the grid, which I think is very illogical. And I think people are w- around the world are waking up that these policymakers aren't brilliant, and in many cases they're <laughs> making political decisions that are not rational. And there's an old well, saying, which I think is true, bought. that... Let's talk about real money. They're being bought. Well, look, at that's what we talked earlier about what SBF got away with, the, the FTX mm-hmm. guy, in terms of avoiding regulatory scrutiny. And, you know, i got to believe that those political donations were part of this cover. But, of course, I don't know that. It just seems logical. I mean, it, it was such, a, such an obvious fraud that went undetected. I mean, where is the SEC in this thing? So, I mean, I think people are losing confidence in Congress. I think they're losing co- confidence in the presidency, and you know, not just Biden. I think it goes before him. And this has been a long process. That's one of the key points of my book is that starting about 25 years ago, but particularly, you know, at the beginning of this new century slash millennium, we began to watch this heartbreaking and persistent degradation of the U.S., but again, as you pointed out, we're not alone. There's the same thing in Western Europe, uh, in much of Asia. It's yeah, I think our policymakers have failed us, and I think the reason is because, as I was going to say a moment ago, that there's an old saying that I think is true: that good politics makes bad policy. You know, you do things that are politically expedient, and yet it doesn't work well, and usually works very poorly. And in the long run, there's a terrible price to pay. You know, when I was a kid. I was always paying attention to politicians because we lived in a small town outside of San Francisco and, you know, politics were pretty important where I lived. And I knew them. They were always at my house. My parents were always talking about politics. And back when I was a kid, I mean, I I read everything. So I had a pretty good handle on how well people spoke or how articulate they were or if they even made sense. I had a good handle when I was pretty young. And now and this is not just now, this has been happening for a long time during my adulthood, I'm recognizing that some of them can speak well. Most of them are just flipping idiots. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. 
I think what's really dangerous is a highly articulate idiot, you know, where they sound <laughs> good and yet, you know, sounds good works bad, which so many of these things do. You know, it's, you know we, we all would love to see a cleaner environment. That, that's great. And I think it makes sense to really try to eliminate pollution. But then it just gets pretty questionable when you start trying to basically decarbonize the economy and, you know, make CO2, which is actually not a pollutant enemy, and ironically, Denise, what's happening during this latest energy crunch is the burning of coal, which is by far the dirtiest. Well, actually, the dirtiest is burning wood, which you would think wouldn't be happening anymore. But in Europe, and that's a major part of their energy supply, is, is burning wood, a lot of it imported from the U.S., and that's even dirtier than burning coal. So coal, but just coal usage alone is at a record, and that's, uh, that's obviously very harmful. And, uh, and that's where real pollutants come from. You inhale that stuff. and Or if you look, think about the developing world, we're often cooking curs inside of a hut, uh, which is wood-fired or even dung-fired. And the, the pollutants that are inhaled kill, according to the World Health Organization, I don't fully trust, but I believe this statistic, it's something like two to three million people die per year because of breathing bad air in their own homes. And we can't imagine that in the West. But no, if you, uh, you know, this war on fossil, I guess the point I'm trying to make is the war on fossil fuels, not all fossil fuels are the same. There are some fossil fuels that burn a lot cleaner and emit a lot fewer pollutants. And there's things we can do to mitigate the emissions. I mean, one of the greatest things ever invented was a catalytic converter. And then shifting from being natural. I'm sorry. Where we live and in California, right. where you live, those are being stolen like crazy. People just boost them Absolutely. right off of the car. They want the palladium and the platinum that's inside of them. And so people are actually having to put cages around their catalytic converters. But between catalytic converters and the conversion from burning coal to burning natural gas, which emits a lot fewer effluents, uh, the U.S. air quality has improved by about 75% over the last 50 years. If you don't believe me, you can go to the EPA website and see that. That's, I mean, there's smart stuff we can do, and it, it doesn't create energy poverty. But a lot of these policies that we've been rushed into in the great green energy transition, we're seeing them. Just look what's going on in the Northeast right now. And, and I'm really worried a lot of people are going to freeze to death in uh, the Northeast part of the United States and in certain parts of Europe this winter because they can't afford to heat their homes. It's and tragic. that's happening. It happened. It's already happened. I think 50 or more people have died in this this big snowstorm, you know, just sitting in their cars, some of them. But I've, you know, I pay attention. I don't really pay attention to mainstream media here in the United States, like politicians. I don't trust them either. So I tend to get my news from across the world and then extrapolate what I think is interesting and then go on a further hunt. I'm very curious. I don't take the headline. It, it, it's like really nice headline. What does it really mean? Nope. I don't pay a lick of attention to any of that stuff. But I do go to Daily Mail and several other UK papers, and they're scared to death what Scotland and you know the UK there's a it's a mess over there it's just as bad over there as it is here in spots worse I think in some cases it's worse it is worse I mean if you because really when you think about economic activity it's basically energy transformed and our energy costs are so much lower than they are over in Europe so we you know we complain and for good reason but we also are incredibly blessed that we have such a vibrant domestic energy sector. In fact, 15 years ago, the U.S. produced about 5 million barrels of oil a day internally, and we had to import the rest. 
And, you know, back then we were importing, say, 10 million barrels a day, so 15 million barrels a day of demand versus 5 million of production. We've gone up to 12 million barrels per day, and we also have had an explosion of energy, uh, sorry, natural gas production. Uh, we've become uh, the biggest natural gas exporter in the world. And we were building these facilities down in your area. You probably remember this uh, not too long ago to import natural gas. Then they, when we had this tremendous boom of, of natural gas production in Pennsylvania and Ohio and Texas, then they realized we better convert these things to export facilities. And thank goodness for Europe we did. Because if Europe didn't have U.S. liquefied natural gas, LNG, they would be in absolute agony right now. So the U.S. has the U.S. energy industry has come to the rescue of Western Europe. Uh, I don't think we should expect any thank you notes. Uh, they still pretty much hate the fossil fuel industry. So it's uh, yeah, we are we are I, blessed, and yet we it's like we can get force in the mouth. Yeah, I don't understand the dislike of the the natural fuels. I just don't. Gas, oil, I don't understand that. It works. You know, we've taken strides. We're constantly, these companies, taking strides and finding better ways to, you know, produce something that's clean. It's, you know, affordable. I mean, it's not like they're just pumping it out and going, here you go. These companies work hard at making sure that what they're delivering is usable and it's affordable as much as it can be and it's clean so what is there to hate i don't understand that idea at all well it's it's obviously a hugely controversial topic and i probably get in trouble by saying you know i think we should be careful about what we're trying to do and you know my biggest gripe has been how quickly we're trying to make this transition and I've been warning about this for years, saying you're going to get, you're going to create an energy poverty situation by doing what you're doing. I mean, it's just amazing to look at the Northeast. I mentioned earlier Pennsylvania. I mean, that's just a, a, few, a couple hundred miles from where the, you know, the big demand for natural gas is during the winter, and yet they won't allow pipelines to be built. There's one that's about 97% complete that is being stopped repeatedly in the courts, and so they have to now import. LNG, just like Germany is, uh, to the northeast so that they don't get it by a pipeline. And, of course, it's way more expensive. And these utility bills, which are have already been horrendously high in the northeast, uh, especially compared to, like, where you are, uh, they're going to be even higher this year. And, and a lot of people are just barely making things ends meet, and to have to have a, a major spike in their energy costs is going to be very painful. Very, very, very much. Listen, we're, ooh, we're running out of time. We've got about six more minutes. Tell us about the organization No Labels. What is your involvement? What is it, and what is your involvement in it? So it is a bipartisan, nonpartisan. It's really bipartisan is more accurate than nonpartisan uh, organization. It's, uh, it actually has a congressional extension. It's called the Problem Solvers Caucus, and I believe there's 29 Republicans on it and 29 uh Democrats, and that's in the House, and then there's roughly 12 uh, and 12 senators, and Joe Manchin is the most famous senator that's part of No Labels, and when I say part of, he's supported by, and he's, a, he's an ardent uh, advocate of the No Labels process. They're also preparing to run a unity ticket, a presidential ticket this year, well, sorry, well, starting this year, but, you know, for the 2024 election, uh, in case it's a 
rematch of Joe Biden and Donald Trump, uh, which you know, I think most Americans would be pretty distressed to see that be a replay. So they're trying to do things to to make the, the political process more rational, to make it less contentious. And I think it's, a, it's what we desperately need. We need some kind of counterbalance. Unfortunately, both parties have gone so far in the case of the Democrats to the left and in the case of the Republicans to the right with uh, some of the more polarizing personalities. And I don't think that's what most Americans want. I think 60 to 70% of Americans want compromise. They want moderation. They want reasonable policies, not quite all this, you know, the stuff that is so, you know, it, it's, it's kind of contrary to really what made this country what it is. Uh, this kind of this hostility towards capitalism, hostility towards markets, hostility towards the energy industry, and uh, really kind of moving us in a in either a, a far right or far left direction. That's I don't believe that's consistent with the will with the will of the people. No, I think right now what we've got is a uniparty. I can't tell one from the other. They all. My my grandfather used to say they all poop under the same blanket. <laughs> <laughs> He actually said a different um, word, but you get you get it. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I, I get it though. <laughs> so, David, you're a pragmatist. No, you're a cent- huh? Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to agree with you. I think that it's this this degradation or national decline that's been in place for the last 25 years has been very much bipartisan. In fact, if you look at uh, the Republicans when they've been in power, they've spent at a faster rate than the Democrats. And we really oh, have can't trust any of them. debt levels. Unfortunately, not. Fortunately, that, that is exactly right. And you know, the debt levels in this country are now just, there's no way the U.S. can service the debt that's in place right now, much less the, the rate of increase. And that's one of my big fears for 2023 is that the U.S. government's going to have a funding crisis because we're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars that need to be raised, you know, new money that needs to come in. And that's at a time when the Fed is now trying to actually shrink their balance sheet, so they're now selling government bonds instead of buying them. That's going to make it even tougher. Social Security is being forced to sell because there's really nothing in there but their government IOUs, which are, you know, pretty much uh, well, certainly not worth face value. So we, we've got a debt crisis that I think is looking us straight in the face, and and that's going to be challenging. I also worry that we've got a, a global housing bubble that's bursting. I mentioned earlier that you had negative interest rates in a lot of Northern European countries. So you had to just, I mean, that, that, that creates tremendous price appreciation. That's why so many young people got priced out of the housing market, but also creates tremendous downside risk when those house prices start going down, which they are. And it's not just Northern Europe. It's also Canada. It's Australia. It's New Zealand. The Chinese real estate market's a mess. And yeah, it's a, it's definitely a disconcerting picture out there right now. But we'll get through it. It really is. It's and really it's not just local. It's not just your grocery bills, your heating bills. It's not, I want people to understand, it's not just what's happening to us that we're looking at in our home, in our families, you know, in our neighborhood. This is happening everywhere. The entire world is kind of falling apart right now. So my question to you is, you know, you're you're a pragmatist. I started this a, a minute ago, a centrist, and you're a family man and a grandfather, and you want to leave the world a better place. How can we best accomplish this? How can we survive everything that we're looking at right now, even if we don't know what we're looking at? What should we be doing? Well, I guess you could, the glib answer would be pretty much the polar opposite of what we've been doing for the last 25 years. 
I certainly think one thing is to move away from bubblenomics, which is where these central banks use their magical money machines to create asset bubbles, which then creates, you know, a surge in tax revenues. I mean, the government revenues exploded after COVID, believe it or not, and yet we still ran huge deficits. The government just can keeps outspending. And so we do have to have a, some kind of return to, you know, common sense economic policies. And I think if we're, if we're impoverished as a country, and, you know, we are – the wealthiest country in the world. But if we impoverish ourselves, you know, we're not going to be able to help out the rest of the world. And I think if we just look at the contrast and, and city, I mean, San Francisco is a, is a microcosm for what's gone wrong and what's, you know, these bad policies. It used to be such a great city. You said you grew up near it. You remember yeah, it. Right, you know, I right around the corner. Way. In this state, um, no, I won't go there. I will not go back to San Francisco. I just can't stand it there. If I have to fly back home, I go to Reno and I drive down. I'm not going to San Francisco. Right. Take the 80. Well, it's uh, yeah, it's just it's heartbreaking, but it's happened to a lot of cities which have gone, you know, far left. And uh, you know, I, again, I've tried to be bipartisan here and say we want to work together. I think that's part of the problem is that this idea that. If you're a Republican, the Democrats are evil, and vice versa. That's just really harmful, and that's why no labels. And you ask me, no, I think we've made mistakes across the board. I don't blame Democrats or Republicans. I blame all the politicians and policymakers and alleged, I'm air quoting, leaders that don't know what the heck they're doing, and they don't have the sense to go find people like you who can advise them. I just don't believe in any of them. Well, for good reason. I, I know we're running out of time. I'll just say, you know, one of the things to think about from just a conceptual standpoint, I'm a big believer in things that work. And if you look at the NFL, National Football League, it really works. And it's had problems, but it always reinvents itself and it comes back more popular than ever. But the basic idea with the NFL is that you let the players play and the referees govern the game. You've got to have referees, and that's really what the government is. The government has to be there in a supervisory role regulatory role, try to regulate for competition rather than against competition, which, again, what the NFL does, they regulate for competition. We don't do that. We're, and we try to get with the government, the U.S. government in particular, and I think West, most Western governments, the, they're trying to play the game. The referees are trying to actually be the players, and it's turned out to be a disaster. So that's just my silly little analogy, but I think there's, uh, there's a decent amount of truth in it. Oh, no kidding. And NFL, I think, you know, my one of my very, very favorite people in the world is Jim Tunney, who's known as the Dean of NFL Referees. So if, if nobody's ever heard of Jim Tunney, you're not watching football or you haven't oh, watched yeah. football. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, sure, absolutely. Jim Tunney, he's, uh, he's oh, one right. of, I've got five favorite people in the world. He's in the top two. Tells you everything you need to know. He's a terrific guy. <laughs> but, David, before... We, before I let you go, is there anything else that you want the audience to know that you think is really important right now? And honestly, I think what I'd like to do, in fact, I know what I'd like to do, is get you back here in you know, three, four months, and let's kind of revisit what has happened between sure. now and then, if you wouldn't mind coming back. I wouldn't mind at all. You can call me on the carpet see how well things worked out. I, I like to keep scoring myself, and that's... Uh, you know, that's why I try to put things in writing. Where you know, I try to be also very accurate about what I get wrong. Uh, in fact, we just did our recap of, of this year and the forecast I made going into the year, what worked out, what didn't work out. And that's, I guess, just to close on, I don't think people really quite got the idea that my 
I guess my moniker, my my nickname in the financial media space is the haymaker, obviously playing on my my last name. And so if you've got people that want to search on that, just go to Substack, as you indicated before, and, and look for the haymaker. And then for our book, you can get it in audio form. We've been battling with Amazon. Uh, boy, it's, it feels like we're dealing with the federal government when it comes to dealing with Amazon, getting our book fulfilled through them. But we'll we'll get there. But in the meantime, we've got the audio book up under awesound, A-W-E, at sound.com. And your uh, listeners can get a discount with, I believe it's Griffiths, just your last name, 33, is the code to get that 33% discount. Oh, okay, so, great. Uh, yes, your, our, our service is free. You know, we do it. We do a newsletter twice a week, and it's free. It's everybody's favorite prize, so you can avail yourself of, if you like what you've heard. And I know a lot of your people won't, but I have a feeling I hope more do than don't. So you can access our stuff and, and continue to, to uh, hear what we have to say about the financial markets and the economy. It's not something we can ignore. We want to. We want to say, oh, it'll fix itself. It always does. But it really doesn't always fix itself. And things are going to change, and things are going to go up and down. I mean, that's just the way life is. So I'm going to recommend that people go to the Haymaker and read your stuff, grab the book, and then grab some Toms, because you're going to need something to settle your stomach <laughs> as you go. But, you know, we, we can't fix what we don't understand. We can't fix what we don't know is coming. We can't fix what we have no idea that it's even around the corner or we're just ignoring it. I don't think we can do much ignoring these days. We have to be aware. Well, I agree. Couldn't agree more. To trust these folks to do the right thing, I mean, they've had their opportunity and they've just whiffed repeatedly. So you're right. Yep. I don't think we can just be in the they'll get it figured out mode anymore. No, no, you have to pay attention. Well, David, before we say goodbye, and I do have your promise that you'll come back, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us in iTunes, Amazon, there's Amazon, Audible, anywhere else you consume your business podcasts. Honestly, you can't throw a stick on the Internet without hitting your partner in Success Radio. So find us and take us along on your success journey. David, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Denise. You're a great interviewer. I really appreciate your interest and uh, your lucidity. Thank you. Half the time, I, I will stop and think, okay, what did I even say there? What was, Did I even make sense? But apparently I did, so thank you very much. You did? Absolutely. Oh, good. Good for me. Listen, I'll call you in a few. We'll get you set up for the next one. That was great, Denise. Thanks again. Thank you. Happy New Year. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st 
to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 